Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. In Revelation, John has a message given first to seven churches who are struggling under the weight of a variety of different pressures, both spiritual and societal. And so many of the issues that these churches are facing are so related and aligned with the issues that we are facing as a church in America, as a local church in Ecclesia. And so we've been slowly wading our way through Revelation, inviting these mysterious images and these puzzling symbols to say something to our situation and our world. And what we've seen thus far is this incredible image of the risen Jesus in the face of all of these pressures that we often encounter. Jesus offers a glimpse and an image of himself. And and he does that not to just say, hey, it's all going to work out in the end, but because through that image of him risen and reigning right here and right now, we find power and strength to endure. And much of Revelation 1 through 5 has reminded us that all of our doing for God comes first from glimpsing this glorious Jesus and understanding who it is that we serve and thus who we are. And last week, as we began to unpack this next section of Revelation, we talked about judgment in Revelation. As sometimes the images and the depictions of God shift towards a seemingly violent deity. And so we wanted to ask the question, okay, is, is Jesus the slain lamb in Revelation 1 through 5, and then all of a sudden makes a turn in Revelation 6? And we saw how many of the uh, ways that Revelation approaches these images actually undermines and turns on their head these violent images. And in many ways, John has offered thus far a message that has been preparatory, that has been preparing us to receive how it is that we as the church are to participate in the victory of the slain lamb. He's been clearing the ground, and we arrive at Revelation 10 today. In the midst of the hard circumstances that the churches that John first addressed were facing, and and the thinking and the complicated and seemingly insurmountable obstacles that we often face collectively and individually, the question remains from Revelation, are we just supposed to wait it out? Are we just supposed to trust in the image of Jesus as the conqueror that we have received and hold on for dear life until the end? Or asked another way, what's our role in all of this? Are we just supposed to say, okay, someday it will all be okay? Or is God inviting us as the language of a priesthood constantly is put before us? Is he inviting us to take part in this victory, to live it out in the confines of our current lives and context? Now, we've seen throughout this series, and especially in Revelation 5, that we as the people redeemed by Jesus, the new Passover lamb, that we're called to be a priesthood, a people marked by the presence of God, who show the world what God looks like. Ecclesia, priests, though the title may seem lofty and may seem so far removed from what we understand our lives to be, but we are called to be a priesthood, and priests simply show the world 
what God looks like and what he cares about. But now, here in Revelation 10, John is going to immerse us in the struggle. Revelation depicts a battle between the forces of good and evil. It's not an equal struggle, if you will. Um, it's not that God's throne is threatened or that his plan in the world is threatened by these forces of darkness, but these forces of darkness have real and actual power, um, real and actual power to undermine God as he works out his plans in the world. In Revelation 10, John's immersing us in this struggle. Revelation 7, as we saw last week, featured a military census, 144,000 as a number symbolic. And then as John turned and he looked, he saw a countless multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation. This is military language. And Revelation 10 will begin to show us what it means for the local church to fight the battle of the Lamb. Now, I know it's, it's easy for us to become un uncomfortable with this kind of militaristic soldier language, and for good reason. Jesus is the king who comes to the throne by disarming the powers of the world by giving of his own life. Jesus doesn't fight with the weapons of our world. Rather, he lays down his life. He fights with the weapon of love. And so, if you're a little off-put by the language, I want to just invite you uh, to accept the symbols as they are, to accept what they're saying, because what they're inviting us into is so vital, but also understand that your discomfort with the soldier militaristic language likely comes from your faithfulness to Jesus in the first place. In Revelation 5, as we scroll back, John wept because there was no one worthy to open this scroll that contained the secrets about the kingdom of God. As John is in the throne room and he's hearing uh, the praise that surrounds the throne of God, he sees a scroll and he knows intuitively that this scroll has the answers to everything. It is the way towards the peace of God. And he sees that no one is worthy to open it until he hears a voice proclaiming the good news. That the Lion of Judah is worthy, that he is the root of Jesse, uh, can conquer. And then he looks and he sees, he expects to see this kingly figure. And what he sees is not an apex predator, not a king robed in royal regalia. What he sees is a slain lamb. And this has everything to do with how Jesus comes to his throne, and we'll see, has everything to do with how we as his people enact his victory in the world. Here in Revelation chapter 10, the scroll appears again, but this time John will receive its contents handed over to him. He'll actually eat it uh, symbolically from an angelic messenger. Let's look in Revelation 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He held a little scroll open in his hand, setting his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He gave a great shout, like a lion roaring. And when he shouted, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write down. But I heard a voice from saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Now leading up to Revelation 10, there's been a successive series, cycles of judgments, seals and then trumpets. Again, we have referenced that these judgments are not necessarily to be taken literally, 
not transposed into images and events from our own time and place, but are meant to signify that God is manifesting His judgment upon the earth against the wickedness and injustice of the ways of the world, removing His gracious care, His protective seal, from the unrepentant of the earth. Now, the first series of judgments, the seals symbolically, affect one-fourth of the earth. The next series, the trumpets, affect a third of the earth. Now when John hears, as we just read in Revelation 10, when he hears the seven thunders, the, the expectation would be that the pattern would continue. That this next series of judgments, moving from a, a quarter, a fourth, to a third, would then affect a half of the earth. But in verse 4 of Revelation 10, John hears a voice telling him to stop the pattern. Instead of increasing in severity, this time in Revelation, the whole sequence is inverted. The judgments are limited. Whereas it usually is the majority who suffer judgment, now the equation is turned on its head. Look at Revelation 11, verse 13. At that moment, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Only a tenth of the people suffer the judgment. What has changed? That's what we want to focus on today. How is the church being called to live in light of the book of Revelation so that, if you saw in verse 13, the, the judgment has the effect that people actually repent. They turn their hearts towards God. So how do we live in such a way that pronounces, yes, that there is a judgment upon this world, that God will do, He will uh, deal with all of the injustice, the racism, the inequity, the, the poverty. God has something to say to all of it. But in the midst of that, there is a great mercy that God is inviting the whole world to come to come and find who they were intended to be, stamped with the image of God from the beginning. Revelation 11, verses 3 through 6 says, And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, John describes the two witnesses here who are granted authority to prophesy for a number of days wearing sackcloth. Two witnesses describes the standard of testimony given by Deuteronomy. The testimony of two witnesses is seen as sufficient and valid to verify that something is true. Sackcloth, in the biblical narrative, is the garment of mourning. Throughout the Bible, characters put on sackcloth to express deep and sorrowful lament. The lampstands are, are described for us and are, are, are symbolically declared to us in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 12 and 20. They signify the church itself. 
And it says that the church is protected by power from their mouths. But this power is not meant to be an offensive power, as if we, as, as some sort of cultural minority as the church, are, are to go on the attack against all those who, who seemingly are opposed to the purposes of God. No, fire is symbolic for the presence of God in the scriptures. The fire by night that accompanies the people of God as they make their way from liberation to the promised land. In referencing the terrible dragon that we'll meet in Revelation chapter 12, John notes how this fire works. Revelation 12 verse 11, But they have conquered him, meaning the dragon, who we'll meet in detail next week, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life, even in the face of death. John goes on to say that the people of God have authority to shut the sky, authority over the waters, and to strike the earth. This is language reminiscent of the plagues that were put before Egypt in the Exodus. Jesus says in Matthew 28 verse 18 that all authority in heaven and on earth upon his resurrection has been given to him. And now... Jesus, as we constitute his body, his church, his people in the world, we have been invited by Jesus to share in that authority. Jesus talking in another place in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 18, talking with Peter about forgiveness, tells him this, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you in my, uh, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. And throughout the New Testament, God's power is offered as testimony to God's presence. Power to heal, power to transform, signs and wonders. Revelation casts this power in terms of prophetic power. Power to shut up the sky, to strike the earth. This may sound as if the church is called to wield power against the world, but that's not at all what's envisioned here. The revelation is telling us that we have power, and where there was increasing judgment as, as it pertains to the, the sequences preceding Revelation 10 and 11, a fourth of the earth were affected, then a third of the earth calamity wrought upon the earth. Now, the church, with its witnessing of suffering love, has been placed as the way of a, a God's announcing the good news to all the world. And God's hope and his prayer is that judgment will not increase, but mercy will increase. That the church, by living out the way of the slain lamb, by being a people of self-giving love on behalf of the world, will be an alternative politic. A people that bear witness to the kingdom of God, to bear witness to the reality that there is another world that stands opposed and over the ways of this world, announcing the good news. And what is that good news? Revelation 11, verse 15, spells it out for us plainly. And one of the most famous passages in the Bible, Revelation 11, verse 15, announces to us what the good news is. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. This is God's present and our future 
And as people who are witnesses called in sackcloth, people who are the lampstand, the olive tree, we are to pull this glorious future into our present life right now. Because this chapter proclaims the gospel and then invites us to live into it, I think it's only appropriate uh, that we narrate some of the specific ways that we as a people do this together. And I want to look very briefly at four ways that the church lives as collection and as individuals into the future right in the midst of our daily present lives. First, the church is called as the witnesses to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of our Lord. The church is called to be a people of lament. I think it's fitting that the witnesses are covered in sackcloth. As I mentioned above, sackcloth is the clothing of mourning. Think of what's going on in our world at this very moment, just this week. The coronavirus pandemic affecting people's lives and people's livelihoods seems to be kicking into another gear in the United States. Our own United States government has been responsible with carrying out a policy of separating children from their parents at the border. And this week we received news that 545 of those children, 545, they can't find their parents. They separated them from their parents and now they have no way of reuniting their families. Church, this should cause us to weep, to lament. You think about what's going on in Nigeria, state police squads are killing protesters in masses. You think about what's going on in our own backyard just this Tuesday. A 16-year-old boy and an 8-year-old boy were shot in their living room, sitting in a place not all that different from where I'm sitting right now. Shot and killed. And that's not to mention all of the personal tragedies and stories that so many of us carry around every day, just trying to get through the day, asking God why, how long. N.T. Wright said of Jesus on the cross, if Jesus on the cross carried the sorrows of the world and we are the body of Jesus in the world, we are his witnesses, then it is our call as the church to carry the sorrows of the world. And as we've seen throughout Revelation, we don't do this in our own strength. We raise our cries to God, our cries of how long, Lord, our cries of come, Lord, come quickly. And as the scene shows us in Revelation 5, our cries... The one thing that we can be confident in, though we may not understand why things happen in the world, the one thing that we can be confident in is that God hears us. That our prayers, our cries are poured out around the throne room of God. That they are poured out at the feet of the slain lamb who sits at the center of the universe, who gives of himself endlessly. Our first call to be the kind of witnesses that bear witness to the truth is to be a people of lament. Our second call is to be a people of hope. Even in the midst of lament, we are a people of a scandalous and beautiful hope. Only the cross and resurrection of Jesus can take loss, pain, and injustice as seriously as they demand to be taken, but not, not triumphalistically ignoring it or just fast-forwarding to the end and saying, oh, everything's going to be fine. Everything happens for a reason. On the cross, on Friday, in the grave, on Saturday, Jesus descends into the depths of the world's sorrow. 
But on that glorious Sunday morning, he comes out the other side. Death is undone. A future narrated anew. He makes all things new. And in the midst of the horrible stories that I outlined above, in the midst of the stories that you carry in your own person every day, we have hope in our King who is overcome by His very blood. So yes, church, we are called as witnesses in the world to take the pain and suffering of our world with all due seriousness, but we know that they do not get the last word. Revelation will tell us, and we will get there in Revelation 21 and 22, that death and sorrow and loss and grief and injustice and pain do not get the last word. We know it's often scary to be a people who stand up for what is right in the world, but we know that we are called to bear witness to the hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the, one of the ways that we bear witness in the world is we look for the glimpses of resurrection, for the ways that God, surprisingly and beyond anything that we could ask or imagine, is weaving stories of grace, of new life. We are called, yes, to be a people of lament. We are called to take the pain and sorrow of this world seriously, but we are a people of the resurrection a people who bear witness to the risen Lord who conquered death, who came out of the grave on that Sunday morning and proclaims that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So just as we're called to be a people of lament, called to be a people of hope, Revelation makes it clear that we're called to be a people of holiness. Revelation speaks frequently of those, the people of God, who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and the notion that we are a priesthood devoted to God. The Old Testament book of Leviticus goes into minute detail on what it means to live as the priesthood. And though many of its practices and stipulations the church has determined uh, can be set aside, what these witnesses are inviting us to see is that we are called to a level of faithfulness and endurance, empowered by God's love, that it is beyond the standards that, of the world around us. The refrain given to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 is the call to conquer, to not conform or compromise. Many of us have a misunderstanding of a holy life as compression. As if God is stifling us into this repressive state. But Jesus calls us to holiness. That through accepting God-given limits and boundaries, we find life. Jesus says of the enemy, the accuser, that the thief comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life to the full. Jesus is inviting us to find our life with all of its expressions, with all of its meaning in his life. To pursue his ways and his rhythms. And this will touch on every part of our existence because holiness is about reintegrating fragmented lives. Sin and brokenness tries to compartmentalize, to break things down into different parts. But, but holiness is a reintegration, a renewal of shalom. The way we spend our money, the way we speak about others, what we do with our bodies, the way we pay attention, the way that we love our spouse, our roommate, child, or neighbor, Jesus invites us to be holy as He is holy. Not as a way of restriction, but as a way of true liberation. Freedom is found in, in engaging and in, in accepting the limits that God has put before us. 
We are called to be a people of lament. We are called to be a people of hope. We are called to be a people of holiness. At last, we are called to be a people of mission. As a people, we carry this beautiful proclamation. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. And we carry this into every space that we go. Individually, I think this mission is as simple as being able to narrate your own story. How has God's grace met you in the past? What does it mean that He saved you? What did He save you from? What does that mean for your present? And what do you hope for in the future? Do you know your story? Have you given, in that old and classic language, your testimony? What has God done in your life? Friends, this is often the most powerful thing that we carry. One of the gifts that we have to offer the world. And yet we are shy we are uh, subdued about this story, but salvation demands to be shouted. Salvation demands to be shared. And collectively, as a church, as Ecclesia, I think this means that our life together, empowered by Jesus' life, His death and resurrection, indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, means that we give of ourselves in love for one another and for the world. Revelation 11 features a seemingly dark twist about the fate of the church. Look at verses 7 through 13. It says, When they have finished their testimony, these are the two witnesses, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them, and he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, it says in verse 9, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and those who saw them were terrified. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. This is a strange and puzzling turn of events in the life of the church. What does it mean that the beast is able to make war upon them and to kill them? What does it mean that the people of the earth rejoice in their undoing? But the point that this is illustrating is that by giving of ourselves as witnesses to the world, even though the worst of physical pain and rejection, and in the case of the churches in Revelation 2 and chapter 3, in the case of very real persecution, even though the worst may befall us, we participate in Christ's victory. In fact, these verses are the very ones that lead up to that glorious pro proclamation in verse 15 that the kingdom of the, our, uh, the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Put another way, there is nothing that we can encounter as the people of God during our earthly lives that will prevent the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of our Lord. This frees us to be a people of abundance, people of sacrifice, people who joyfully narrate the gospel of Jesus. Friends, we are coming upon an election in our country. And so many Christians have tried to make the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of our Lord, by grasping for power. 
But the very point that Revelation 11 is making is that it's only by living the way that Jesus did, by not demanding our rights, by not demanding our privileges, by not demanding that we be seen as people of power and authority, but by giving up that authority, by stewarding it on behalf of the world, by stewarding it on behalf of our neighbors. It's only that way, that politic, that declares that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Any Christian grasping for political power, any Christian delusion that we bring the kingdom of God by the more authority that we have or the more laws that we can write, is completely contrary to the picture that's given here in Revelation chapter 11. We are a people of the slain lamb. Our politic is a, is a, a witness to the risen Lord who overcomes the world by giving of his very blood. We don't grasp for power in the world's way. No, we give of ourselves sacrificially. And in doing so, even though we may lose some of the battles, we bear witness to the fact that the Lamb has already won the war. That the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. George Handel wrote his Messiah in order to tell the story of the Passion, the last week of Jesus' life specifically. And his friend outlined a series of significant Bible passages that he wanted Handel to set to music. Handel did and produced the Messiah. And he first performed his piece in venues that were not traditional for a musical piece of that sort. Handel saw the potential for the story told through music to reach other audiences so that he had the play performed in theater houses, often by performers who were not themselves believers. And one other possibility that Handel saw for this piece was that it could be used on behalf of others. So he arranged for the Messiah to be performed in a hospital for orphans in London. And this idea took off and it became an annual and a frequent thing for Handel's Messiah to be performed as a sort of benefit concert. The climax of the music features this proclamation that we have been centered around from Revelation 11 verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and he shall reign forever and ever performed tens of thousands of times since the 18th century, Handel's piece has become famous not simply for its incredible music, but also for its benevolence. One scholar noted of the benefit concerts featuring Handel's Messiah, Messiah has fed the hungry, clothed the naked, fostered the orphan more than any other single musical production in this country or any other. And it's here that we see the collision of story and mission. Our witness is not just shouting to the world that the end is near, repent or burn. Our witness is telling the story in such a beautiful and in such peculiar ways. Uh, and in the words of Jesus, that we bring good news to the poor, we proclaim release to the captives, we give sight to the blind, we announce liberation for the oppressed, we proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Our, our witness is told, we bear witness even in dying to the resurrection of Jesus, to his glorious reign and rule. To end with one of my favorite quotes from N.T. Wright, one of my favorite quotes ever. And you'll hear this a lot if you journey with us for any time at Ecclesia. N.T. Wright invites us to see that our lives, as lived out as people of lament, as people of hope, as people of holiness, as people of mission, our lives lived out declare 
the kingdom, the reality of the kingdom of our Lord, and bring that glorious future into our present right here and right now. N.T. Wright writes, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What do you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present, and look at this, by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it behind altogether, as the hymn so mistakenly puts it, they are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Ecclesia, I want to offer one last challenge to you this morning. If the kingdom of your life, the kingdom of your world, is still totally and squarely in your possession, maybe God is inviting you to see that all the things that you think you need, all the things that you think will make for a life of freedom and, and purpose and meaning for you, what if you were to just lay those down? and allow God to present to you His glorious story, His story of freedom, of salvation, and life eternal, and to see that He has called you, yes, you, to be a part of His priesthood, that you are called to be a one, narrating the story of God's salvation through lament, through hope, through holiness, through mission. There's nothing that, we, that, that can happen in this world that can overcome the reign of God. And just so, there is nothing that you could ever do or have done that will ever come between you and God's relentless love for you. Revelation 11 is certainly a very collective chapter. It's about the church as a whole, but it's also asking questions of us as individuals. Will we say yes to his reign, to his rule? Will we say yes to his ways in the world? You know, our way is to grasp for power. And the witness of the revelation is that constantly Jesus is inviting us to let go. To understand that God has already won the victory and we participate in this victory by letting go just as Jesus did. Ecclesia, he died for you. He gave his life for you. He has overcome the world for you. Will you accept his reign and his rule? Will you let the kingdom of your life become the kingdom of our Lord and find that His ways, His glorious freedom, the beauty of His salvation are better than the life that you ever could have drawn out for yourself. He's inviting you. Come. Will you respond? Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.